we're working in putting together a point-of-care three-dimensional skin printer. I could have done that in the 90s with 3D print cells, skin cells. <laughs> Welcome to Ahead of the Curve in Digital Health, a podcast about innovations, leaders and opportunities in digital healthcare. My name is Beth Cornelia and today I'm talking with Dr. Fiona Wood, a plastic surgeon turned clinical innovator, entrepreneur and philanthropist. Dr. Wood came to prominence in the public eye back in 2002 when her groundbreaking work with spray-on skin saw her provide life-saving care to victims of the tragic Bali bombings. She helped 28 patients, some suffering from burns to up to 92% of their bodies. Her five-day skin culturing technique led her to launch her company, Vita Medical, whose royalties are poured back into the Fiona Wood Foundation. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you very much for joining us on only our second episode of Ahead of the Curve in Digital Health. It's a real pleasure to have such a renowned innovator in healthcare here with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. No worries. Now, your story is a very well-known one, so much so that you're quite literally a national treasure. I found you on a list of living national treasures, which is Definitely the living side. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's so great to set the scene and just give people that maybe don't know yet just a little bit of your background how you decided on plastic surgery as your original specialty and how you ended up in the field of burns treatment. Wow, gosh, that's going back a very, very long time now. (laughs) I mean, I grew up in the north of England and I was third of four kids and like lots of kids run around a lot, but I was one of those kind of why kind of kids. And it was clear to me that I was needed to get to go to university and after ticking off astronaut and a few other (laughs) things, I applied for medicine. And so I found myself in St. Thomas's Hospital in London in 1975, which was an amazing time to be in London, was awesome. Mm. And we had such a good time. And I did an extra degree in my medical degree. So I ended up doing six years and I did anatomy and neuroanatomy and anthropology. And so six years later, I came out and I was very, 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 very focused on being a surgeon all the way through. Mm -hmm. I was surgically inclined, as they say, from my first sort of exposure in 1975. And so then I had started looking for what jobs. So I sought the jobs that I thought would give me the exposure. I wanted to see where I was going to go. I'd already started doing research as a very much at the bottom of the pile, a bit of a dog's body, you know, sweeping the floor. And so I'd had exposure to plastic reconstructive surgery. It's a very creative specialty. And so I was very much in that tribe and looking at very interesting new things at the time. Macrosurgery was just coming in, tissue expansion, all sorts of different (laughs) techniques were being used. And so I thought, right, well, let's have a look at this. And within that whole plastic and reconstructive surgical specialty, I suppose, I saw some burn scars. I thought, oh, goodness me. Nasty. Can't we? Oh, yeah. I thought, (laughs) can't we do better than that? Really? Come on, let's get a, come on, chop, chop. Lovely attitude. And so I sought out at Burns Jobs and I realized how big the Everest was and how hard it was. You know, the challenge was enormous. And it's been an extraordinary journey, still going. And I'm forever grateful that I'm I've limited myself. I've kind of like limited imagination. So I'm like, (laughs) well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to change because I've been able to really drive down that rabbit hole with the level of aggression and really engage in that translational research and understanding all that sort of technology and science that can bring to bear to improve lives. And that's what's brought me into the digital space as well, always trying to figure out how to do better. That's amazing. So back then you were working with, you mentioned that it, you thought we can do better, right? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand previously skin culturing techniques would take 21 days to produce enough cells 
to be useful enough to cover large burns. And through the the innovative work that you did, you got that down to five days. What was that process like? And how? Oh, that came later. Oh. Yes, yes, that came later. But certainly, that whole how do we? The first thought was how can we regenerate? How can we replace skin? the way it looks normally, mm. the way it flows over our insides, if you like. <laughs> and why do we have to have scars? So that's the first point. And then the thing is, well, skin grafts are only so good. We can borrow Peter to pay Paul if you've got a Peter. Because yeah. sometimes Paul's bigger than Peter and he was <laughs> like, whoa, where am I going to get this skin from? And so I was exposed to that early research that started growing skin cells in late 1970s, early 80s. And I was watching this like, yeah, I clearly need to get out more because I used to wait for the journals to come so I could read more about it. It was one step up from Beano and you know, the comics. but <laughs> And so I was watching this and thought, how amazing this. Can you use laboratory-based tissue regeneration? And so to get into a space where you can actually have an influence, you know, there's a fair bit of training involved <laughs> one way or another. And that involved being a doctor and then doing my surgical training and then do my plastic and reconstructive surgical training, and then get in my job as a consultant, which was in 1991, where then I could actually really drive that change. Mm-hmm. And so the whole skin story started in 1990, based on you know, my learnings over the previous decade, watching, reading, and understanding. And so then being in a position where I could hit the ground running And so we built the skin lab here in Perth in 1993. And that was at the Children's Hospital with a grant from Telethon. And I'd met Marie Stoner, who's a medical scientist, who was previously in the bone marrow laboratory. Mm -hmm. And we'd done some talking and we'd done some of the early work with scientists in Melbourne, but we really needed to have our own base here. Mm -hmm. And so that's when, you know, grown cells to skin graft takes about three weeks. Mm. And that's a long time. Mm. It's Some a long don't have that time. Long, right? Sometimes no. And so Marie and I, when we first opened the lab, we were so excited. We had got enough money to employ Marie and this lab, the laminar flow hoods and the centrifuge <laughs> and the incubator. It was like, whoa, Christmas. And it was February of 1993. And so then we said, right, let's look at everything that's been written in the world around this topic and understanding. It's like anything, understanding what you're dealing with is number one. You know, actually, number two, the first thing is turn up. The number two is know what you're doing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so is that the clinical innovation? Because that's kind of when it comes to innovating in a clinical setting, is this the process that you would recommend to others? Number one, show up. Yeah. Number two, know what the heck you're trying to figure out. Absolutely. And know what's been done before. Yeah. We live in an, in an environment of really limited resource, mm. every decision, I say to the youngsters, every decision you make, every clinical decision you make is a resource decision. Yeah? Mm. If you open up two packets where you could open one, simple things, yeah? Mm. And so, you know, then you've got to think about, well, okay, oh, I've got a great idea. Oh, I'm brilliant. <laughs> oh, I'm a genius. And then only to find that somebody's done it before. Mm. It's <laughs> not, not just once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe many times. So yeah. knowing knowing your onions and knowing what it is that's been done before is absolutely vital. Mm-hmm. And so we wrote, we photocopied, <laughs> faxed, that, yeah, those like old-fashioned words, uh, these papers, and we had them set, laid on the floor in the room and we had enough space to lay them. And then we put them in piles of different fast steps because we were focused on speed. And, yeah, the speed 
to healing is still the main focus. And so put all the papers in piles, right? They do this quick, they do that quick. And then we had ideas of our own. Mm-hmm. And so Marie, the first cab off the rank, threw the cell sheet in 10 days. And we go, we're on a roll, we're on a roll. <laughs> and I said 10 days was the target because you know, if a wound heals in 10 days, the chances of scarring less than 4%. Mm-hmm. By three weeks, 70%, and so on it goes. So time to healing. And of course, the infection, the mortality, everything starts mm-hmm. to build. And so very quickly, we realized, we're looking at the skin cells on the body in the lab, and we thought, whoa, the more immature these are, the better they're performing. And that was counterintuitive because mm-hmm. we were used to skin grafting pieces of skin, you know, that mm-hmm. looked and felt and were like skin. And then we were starting to get more and more like skin grafting cobwebs, like the king's new clothes. <laughs> but it looked better. I thought, oh, this is really interesting. So we did a whole raft of experiments and, and to try and understand what was going on. And then Marie said, we should put this on a suspension and we can do that in five days. So we did the suspension in five days, but how do you get the suspension on? Pour it on. And yeah, we're all of a very different shape and mm-hmm. the burn is in a different place. And so we're not sure which one of us said it, but in about, it was 1994, we go, well, one of us you know, said, well, we should just spray this stuff on. And we went dashing down to Rockaby Road and got to the art store, Jackson's <laughs> art store, and to the pharmacy and then to the anesthetic trolleys and anything that sprayed, hairspray, nose spray, any spray. And we found a spray on an Italian mouth freshener. <laughs> of that, all things. Yeah, of all things. Amazing. That when you clip it onto a standard hospital syringe, gave us 90% viability. Wow. And so we had, that's the nozzle I used earlier today. Yeah, we still use that nozzle. Amazing. And so, so that was, uh, yeah, the, but then we thought, well, can we use the patient as a tissue culture flask? Instead of growing the cells, harvesting the cells from you, putting them in the incubator, talking to them, singing to them, growing them, you know, watering each day for five days, can we do this actually straight onto you? Yeah. And that's where we do it in 30 minutes. Yeah. And so we then have thought, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make this available? And when I look at this a resale kit, and when I look at the kit, it's quite hard to imagine how we did this as a young scientist and a young surgeon because it's got electronics in it and, and enzymes and it's molded plastic and all the kits of the instruments with it. And we did it with a lot of support and a lot of help. We had the idea, we had the vision, we had the inspiration, but you never do anything on your own. Mm. You know, Go Medical did our own Subiaco, did all the electronics for us, CSL did the enzyme for us, and so on it goes, you know. Wow. So from what I'm hearing, number three is follow where the research leads you. So yes. you guys went with, okay, it seems like fully formed skin grafts aren't actually the way to go. We need to follow. It's kind of pulling the thread, isn't it? Yes. And going where the research leads you. Yeah. Then it's get creative with yep. the Italian, was it mouth pressure? Yep. yep. <laughs> Love it. And then get support. Yep. It's just so critical. And I think that a lot of, yeah, young clinicians these days could absolutely use that kind of methodology that you pioneered back then to do such amazing work that's still being used so widely today. Well, it's just a question of believing in yourself. I think it's hard because we're in a relatively austere environment and we're making decisions that you know, influence people's lives. And you know, you've got to be, understand that paradigm we're working in and that, that can really knock you around. Mm. And, and you've got to have enough self-belief to move forward, but not so much you don't notice when you're not right. Mm. Yeah. You know, so there's, you've got to have that sort of humility mm-hmm. in this space. Absolutely. And, so, and know when you don't know. 
But it comes back to like, yeah, I've got this idea. I've got this. But let's, instead of going to people who just knock you back and knock you over, go find somebody who will actually explore it and tease it out with you. It'll help you unravel the ball. Mm. Find different conversations. You know, and maybe your idea isn't the end of the world, as it were, the great thing. But then by discussing and finding someone to discuss it with, you start to understand it and interrogate it. And, and everything's multi-layered. Mm. And it's that self-belief that's really important but with a healthy dose of humility. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it's funny you mentioned humility because it must have been such a weird experience in 2002 when you became a household name thanks to the work you did with 28 victims of the Bali bombing. So what was that experience like? Because there was national, international spotlight on you at that moment in time. Yes, it was. It doesn't get any easier talking about it. I'd have to say it's almost 20 years now and it's just like, whoa, my life changed in a way that, you know, you go to school, you work hard, you pass your exams, you get choice, you go to uni, you work hard, you pass choice, pass or fail, whatever, it gives you the choice and so on. It's very kind of predictable, right? Mm. And then all of a sudden life, there are things in life, serious curveballs. Mm. And think, whoa, how did that happen? And so I think if I explain the backstory, you'll understand maybe why we got so much attention here. Because in the late 1990s, we were working with Woodside. And that's uh, you know, been a relationship that we've had for a very, very long time since we started. They were building North Rankin is a platform off the Northwest Shell. And uh, it's the same configuration as Piper Alpha off the coast of Aberdeen in the UK. And it was that Piper Alpha explosion was the biggest loss of life from such an in- incident ever. And so with the same configuration, they changed it. They had blast walls and things, but they also did a very rigorous disaster response, uh, and it was exercised. So we worked together on how you would respond in a disaster in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, a disaster in my space is when your facility is overwhelmed. Mm. An explosion in the Northwest, Nickel Bay Hospital is a great place. You know, some great clinicians there, nurses and docs and allied health, but overwhelmed Mm. in a heartbeat, yeah? yeah? And no burns specific capability. And so... We went through this whole uh, very rigorous program of education and training and strategy, and we exercised it across the country as well. So, right, okay, we need a disaster plan. What happens if we have an explosion in the Sydney Olympics? Yeah, what do we do then? Well, we have to work together because we've got very focused multidisciplinary burns teams in the capital cities, but the biggest burns unit is Concord at 14 beds. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to surge? How are we going to... And so all this was done tabletop and it was lots of planning and... We sent it all finally to the health minister's advisory council in July of 2002. Oh, my goodness. It was all approved by August. That timing. And we did it for real. So it was the front of our mind. And and I've been a great believer. You know, I was one of these that, you know, what do you mean we have to do a evacuation exercise? Trust me, do it. Do (laughs) it, do it, do it. Planning makes the difference. Actually going through it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am a convert. None of this, oh, do we have to? No, yes, you do. <laughs> do the fire yeah. drill. <laughs> yeah, do the fire drill because, my goodness, well, you may never need it, let's hope. Yes. But the time you, you do, do it, oh, you are grateful you've done it. And so are all your family. And so having done all that, as I say, we did it for real. And so we were in a space where operationally it worked well. We had collaboration with the armed forces with retrieval and that was all planned. And it was kind of orchestrated 
and just all the different groups of the states and the Commonwealth, everybody worked together because they all knew where they sat on the plan. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the window to our world was open in a way that was, I think, almost uniformly positive, which is unusual in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. It was unusual in media because I think I changed significantly for many reasons at that time. My life changed. And one of the things I really understood and still believe is that there's an awful lot more good out there than bad, yeah? And the bad news is we are, well, that's all we ever, uh, we're fed with the media. Well, we read it. Mm-hmm. And why don't we're we tell... We're responsible for yeah, we can, that. Yeah, we can tell good news stories as... as but, you know, we're over the garden fence, oh, did you see what she's done? Oh, you know, instead of, oh, have you seen what they've done? Yeah. You know? Perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was a very positive experience on one level, but also very harrowing on another, mm. you know? So there's nothing like being prepared, and it was what we were trained for. Yeah. And, you know, seeing the whole team come together and grow, of course, because mm. we had this buddy systems that we'd all talked about. We trained people so they knew what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. They knew our language. They were part of our tribe, even though temporarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, it was the backstory actually makes it understandable why yeah. why people... And then many of the teams across Australia spoke about disaster play and response, mm-hmm. disaster response, and it's ongoing, you know, reiterative, isn't it? I mean, the responses to the White Island Volcano were mm. extraordinary. The New Zealand's part of it. We have a strip. Ansbury is Australian New Zealand Burns Association. And so they were part of it. And you know, the Richard at Middlemore and the whole team did extra across all of New Zealand did an amazing job. Amazing. So to bring it back to, I guess, the young clinicians, I mean, from what I'm hearing, one of the key pieces of advice is do your planning. Yeah, <laughs> well plan, worth yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> something that, that we see a lot of is that a lot of the clinicians we deal with, they have trouble getting the innovations beyond the lab and turning a groundbreaking discovery like you know spray on skin into a sustainable business that can fund itself and can benefit people well beyond just that one location. Yeah. What advice do you have for challenges that, that come up in that process? Well, I think first thing I'd say is in that innovation is our lifeblood. Innovation is mm-hmm. our tomorrow. Our young clinicians are our tomorrow. I teach on the care of the critically ill surgical patient, CRISP course. And I often say, they say, why are you here? Why do you volunteer you know, three days of a weekend? And I said, well, I've been invested very heavily in my children because they will pick my nursing home. And I'm investing very heavily in you because you'll be looking after me when I'm there. Yeah. And, so, and when I'm there, I don't want to have the same treatment that I would treat somebody if I was there now, right? Mm. I want the latest technology. I want to be able to understand that this innovation is part of your DNA and your lifeblood. And the first thing I'd say, therefore, is there's an awful lot of innovation that is business as usual and keep doing it because it's not going to be a cochlear implant, yeah? Mm. But it is absolutely valuable. Mm. It makes a difference. And it makes a difference to the whole system, to the Mm. system working well. We work in a very complex system. Mm. And so those small incremental gains are vital, especially as that increase in complexity. And then the next thing I'd say is never give up. Love it. Never give up. Yeah. And come back at things. Mm. Yeah. And there's nothing ever wasted. I uh, was I had a chat in the conversation corridor today with a, a young consultant who, when he was a med student, did a piece of work that's led to a grant that we've just got, an HDMRC grant that we've just got for this year. Fantastic. Around the neurology and the, how the nerves change in burn care. But that's based on work I did. The first paper I ever published was in the neurology of skin and plasticity of the neurology of skin in the 1980s. 
And then I go down the rabbit hole of training and all the different things we've done along the way, like educating into first aid or whatever it may be, because we sort of ideas and things happening all over the different continuum of our of our sort of care plan. And then you never lose it. You know, mm. there's always that it's it been, always, always been an itch at the back of my mind, you know. So you can come back to it. Mm. You know, you can shelve it, but never give up on it. Because it may be that the time isn't right and it may be that you need other technology to move on. For example, right now we're working with a group in Queensland, Wollongong, Sydney, and here, putting together a point-of-care three-dimensional skin printer. Because I just don't want to put cells in there. I want to put the framework of skin. I want to put the whole box and dice of full thickness skin together at the point of care, at the bedside. And I couldn't have done that in the 90s. The 3D print cells, skin cells. Like, <laughs> Sounds kidding? like something. Like, Whoa, yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a, we, we have got a printer, a prototype printer from Inventure in the, UW, in the lab in UWA that we'd be using it. Yeah. And then Bioinks. Where do you get the Bioinks from? Fascinating. All sorts of different places. So you can come back to things, yeah. Absolutely. And so the spray and skin story is ongoing. Yeah. You know? Well, and now then, it's 3D printed skin yeah. and, and, and then soon like, it'll be VR skin. I don't know. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll want to innovate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And one of the young clinicians who did his master's with us some years ago now uh, said, well, why can't we make it better than it was originally? Why can't we make it tougher, more resistant to trauma? Uh-huh. Yeah. More enhanced. Yeah. And so that, Genetically yeah. modified skin. Well, well, and certainly the genetically yeah. modified skin of people with a very, there's been done. Mm. There's a really, really distressing disorder called epidermolysis bullosa, which is a very sort of convoluted way of saying your skin blisters. Right. Not fun. Just touching. Oh, and it is an awful congenital disease. And in Germany, they've actually done a genetic manipulation and treated wow. someone with it and treated their cells and grown their cells and put the new cells back on. Mm. Yeah, so that's, you know, it's not beyond, it, it is getting into the sort of the future mm. and the sci-fi, but it's there. You know, the, the future is here, as it were, and it will be here mm. in a much more consistent fashion if people believe in themselves mm. so that their ideas are of worth. Absolutely. What I was going to ask you, how has digital technology changed how clinicians work? But I feel like you just very much answered that. It's changing every single day, I think is the answer. Yeah, I think certainly looking around what I see and you see people behind computers, I'm like, no, we've got to be able to get this technology to the space the where, field, yeah. where the bedside, we've got, it, mm. we've got this power we have in our hands with our phones. We've got to be able to do better with this. Look at artificial intelligence offloading you cognitively so you can have the time to think about how to innovate the next step. Mm. You know, thinking about capturing data in a seamless way with integrity and then knowing that you can rely on that data instead of keeping it in your mind and then go and typing it into a computer somewhere mm. in the office later, yeah. you know? What efficiencies can yes. we create with oh. it? And so that's why I'm very much in this space and trying to, I've just been for, to Royal Perth and they have developed this hive system where they've got a huge amount of tech basically monitoring remotely, monitoring other, the beds in the different beds in the hospital. The idea is that you predict when things are deteriorating before it deteriorates yeah. so that you have know, treated proactively, not reactively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, that's the benefits of that. You don't go yeah. without saying. And so now you get me on to this. This is like, <laughs> oh, I think it's, you know, it's exciting. I The only bad thing about it is, I'm t- I keep saying, I haven't got another 30 years left. <laughs> Guys, we've got to hurry up. We've got to do this. Well, they do say the rate of innovation and the rate at which technology moves is exponentially fast. So you never know. 
in 15 years, it could all I love it. Well, look, thank you so much, Fiona. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you and to have you on second episode, your extensive experience in this space and just your passion for the innovations that are going on is absolutely incredible. So thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been lovely to chat. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to Fiona's amazing story and you're keen to hear what we talk about next month, please like, subscribe or drop us a rating. We look forward to talking to you next month on Ahead of the Curve in Digital Health.